You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. To uh, the passage you read, John's Gospel, chapter 20, page 1089. And I want us to look at uh, this whole question of the resurrection from different angles, especially perhaps for those of you here and say, well, it's really nice. It's nice to hear you sing about this. It's nice. It makes you so happy. But no, not really. Dead people don't rise. But I also want us to look at it from the angle of the Christian who perhaps has become a little blasé about the resurrection and say, yeah, of course, I believe that. But to ask what difference it makes. Uh, There is a grave in Paris. Uh, Some of you will know about this. Jim Morrison of the Doors died in Paris and he's buried there. Um, If you don't know who the Doors are, you need to get taste in music because they they were a great band in lots of ways. Quite sad in their ethos and so on. And... uh, But still, to this day, I mean, he died, what, 40 years ago. Still to this day, there are people who flock to Paris to visit his grave. Christians have a problem because we don't have the grave of Jesus. We lost it. Um, Why? Why, of all people, you would think that we would have kept the grave of Jesus? Why was it not that important? And the answer is... Because Jim Doors is buried, but Jesus is alive. It became completely irrelevant. Why would you have it as a shrine when you can actually have the person himself? Now, we talk about the miracle of the resurrection, and I just want to lay just a little bit of background here about how we use the term miracle. The term miracle in the Bible is used also when you read the word sign it's used. Uh, Later on in this chapter, we're going to read about many other signs that Jesus did, miraculous signs. They are signs that convince the doubter. They are signs that show the truth of what's being said because there are many claims made about many things. How do we know what is true? Well, miracles, we understand in that way. We, um, I'm afraid, use the term miracle very loosely. Uh, I said to someone coming in, we're going to start on time, and they said, that'll be a miracle. Uh, well, it, oh, it, well, no, it happened. We did start on time, so that's your first miracle. But that, when we use miracle like that, we're not using it in a biblical sense. We are talking about what C.S. Lewis calls a divine intervention, an interference with nature by supernatural power. Now, so much of this depends upon how you think. Um, forgive me just a wee bit of philosophy here. If you're a naturalist, you believe that the only things that exist are basically chemicals. It's just matter. Matter is all that exists. The thoughts that you have, they are a product of your brain, which is itself chemicals. Love that you might feel, anything that we say and we do, anything that happens, it's just matter. There is nothing beyond matter. If you are a a supernaturalist, if you like, you believe that, of course, there is matter, that it's real, but you also believe that matter is not the only matter. It's not the only thing that exists. And that's a very important distinction. Because if you are a materialist or a naturalist, the first thing you're going to say is miracles don't happen. 
They just don't happen. So it doesn't matter what evidence I would present or the Bible would present to you. No, cows don't jump over the moon. Miracles don't happen. That's the world in which you live. I'm G.K. Chesterton says this, the believers in miracles accept them rightly or wrongly because they have evidence for them. I hope there's not a Christian here who says, well, I just believe because I believe. I think that uh, we do have evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and for the miracles that he did. But Chesterton goes on to say, the disbelievers in miracles deny them rightly or wrongly because they have a doctrine against them. And there is a strange paradox because somebody will come into this church and they'll say, you know this, you Christians, you've got your doctrines and your teachings. I'm not like that. I've got reason and I've got evidence. But actually, you're sitting listening to me and your doctrine is miracles don't happen. And you're not going to budge from that because that's the world in which you live and you're not going to move out of that world. Chesterton again says this, it is we Christians who accept all actual evidence. It is you rationalists who refuse actual evidence, being constrained to do so by your creed. The word signs that John uses, signs of something beyond, signs of something extra. It's a great question. They're signs, they're pointing. What does a sign do? A sign points you to somewhere. You see the sign, Tay Bridge. It's pointing you to go to the Tay Bridge. Well, the signs that Jesus did point to who he is and point to the the good news that we have in the gospel. A miracle in the Bible is viewed as proof of the divine. And this is the greatest miracle of all. If you look at these words um, on from verse 11 where she went to the tomb and particularly verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. Let me just move on to... Yeah, go on to the next one as well. You see there, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things he had said to her. Now, you can if you want. we We could be here a very, very long time if I was to present you all the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, there's a professor across in St. Andrews now, N.T. Wright, who's written a marvelous book on the resurrection, but it's like 800 pages long. So I'm not even going to try and distill that for you. I'm just going to take what's here in the Bible. What does the Bible actually claim? What's the actual evidence for the resurrection? Let me just list what we've got here. Witnesses. That's the first thing. Another man in St. Andrews, Richard Bauckham, um, these are both worldwide authorities, has a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And the interesting thing about the gospel is they are written as eyewitness accounts. That's why they vary. Because when you've got four different people seeing the same event, they will see it in different ways and describe it in different ways. But they're describing the same event. Well, there were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The people weren't expecting it. Why was Mary crying? If Mary was going to the tomb saying, oh, I'm going to find Jesus... Why was she crying? If the disciples stole the body, as one of the stories went round, why would their lives change if they knew it wasn't true? This testimony here in John's gospel is an extraordinary testimony. Uh, Incidentally, one of the ways it's extraordinary is a cultural one that we wouldn't understand, or at least most of us wouldn't understand except 
those of you men who are still misogynists. Because uh, in Jewish culture, at this time, the testimony of a woman was only considered to be worth half that of a man. And if you were making this up, you would have had Peter going to the tomb and John going to the tomb and Matthew going to the tomb. And you would have had them as superheroes of the faith saying, Jesus told us he would rise from the dead, so we're going expectantly. Like you come expectantly to an Easter service. We're going expectantly. But it doesn't. It has these men basically having given up, cowering at home, the women going to dress the body, and then this happening. And that is, I think, it's an extraordinary evidence in that sense, the witness. There's the testimony of the scripture itself. Now, some people think that that is uh, unfair. It's what they, they say, it's circular reasoning. The Bible says that the Bible is true. But it's unfair to just completely dismiss the Bible because these documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written as historical documents. And not just them, but also in the Old Testament, there were prophecies about Christ. And in the New Testament, in the letters, there is more evidence presented. So instead of just dismissing it, it's worthwhile reading it and see what it says. I love the prophecies. For example, Psalm 16, verse 10. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. Or Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. So you've got the witnesses. You've got the testimony of the scripture. You've got changed lives. And that is incredible. The... the change from depression, discouragement, not understanding. The passage that Sinclair will look at this evening in Luke 24, there are two disciples walking on a road outside Jerusalem and probably a married couple and they are thoroughly depressed because everything that they had given themselves to, everything that they, were, everything that they had expected, they lost. Have you ever had that? Have you ever expected something? Have you ever felt that you've been promised something by God and you were absolutely certain of it and the day comes it doesn't happen or the opposite happens? And what's the first thought that comes into your mind? But God, you told me this and now it hasn't happened. I felt this. I knew this. I knew this was the right thing, but it hasn't happened. You feel really let down. You begin to doubt the darkest doubts, the darkest fears. Maybe God Maybe God's not there. Maybe God's horrible. All these different kinds of things come in. And these two on the road to Emmaus, they were, in, they were in that state, as were, I think, all the disciples. And yet, by the time we go to Acts chapter 1, which is really the second part of Luke's gospel, we find that the disciples have changed. They have gone from being despondent and depressed and discouraged to being prepared to stand up in the temple, to stand up in front of the Sanhedrin, to take a beating, to take on the Romans, to travel. Ultimately, eventually, they will travel all over the Mediterranean world, telling people, what? Telling people that Jesus is alive. I think the changed lives of the disciples and what followed from that, the church, and the continual growth of the church. We were praying for China you know, we look in our country and people are going, oh, the church is doomed and we're all going to die and it's all terrible and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm probably one of the worst for that because I think the church is in a huge mess, far bigger than most Christians are prepared to admit. 
But I don't believe that the gates of hell will ever prevail against the church. Why? Because we don't worship a dead Lord. We worship a living one. And that's why today, there's a a picture in this church that we have of um, a man who uh, went to China and he went as a missionary and he went just before a man called Hudson Taylor and he's dressed in Chinese dress and at that point in China there were hundreds of millions of people and virtually no Christians and today there are more Christians in China than there are in the whole of Europe a hundred million probably and it's wonderful what's happening It's wonderful in many areas of Africa what is happening or in South America what is happening. Actually, it's wonderful that in places in the United Kingdom and in Scotland, there are churches that are growing and thriving and there are people who are becoming Christians. And that's a tremendous evidence, not to brainwashing, not to the great religious mythologies of Christianity. It's just a tremendous evidence to the power of the risen Christ. Because I have to say this, without that, we have nothing. As Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we are of all people to be pitied. I think that's a great evidence. And let me say as a historian that one of the greatest evidence is just simply this. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Why is that important? Because it was significant. It was marked. People knew where it was. It was not a pauper's grave. Go out to those graves out there. There are 400 people buried under those 26 stones. We can't identify the vast majority of them. On the other hand, the big grave at the side there, Robert Murray McShane's, that's his. And that's what the church is. He's a previous pastor of this church. Uh, even more famous than me. Sorry, that was a terrible thing to say. But, you know, he's... He was, he was a really, um, that was very egotistical, wasn't it? Uh, he, he was, you know, that's McShane's grave. People travel from all over the world to take a photograph of McShane's grave. But what about, maybe, we, there's more than 300 people buried in the graveyard who we don't know. Well, Jesus being buried in this rich man's tomb was, is important because They know where the body was, they had it guarded, they had a stone put across it, and yet it was empty. If the disciples sold the body, it doesn't make sense that they were prepared to die for a lie. If the um, uh, Romans or the Jewish authorities had taken the body, then when the Christians were saying Jesus is alive, all they had to do was produce the body. Sometimes people ask me, what would destroy your faith? And I said, I'll tell you what will destroy my faith if you show me the bones of Jesus then that's it done. Because my faith is based entirely on this aspect that Christ is alive. One other thing um, as regards this evidence, and that is the resurrection appearances. Now people would say, well, that's just psychological mass hallucination and so on. No, go and look, read in the scriptures about the different types of appearance that they were. And they do not read at all like Uh, hallucinations. We're going to read on in a moment about one of them. And there you have disciples who are uh, like Thomas saying, no, I'm not going to believe this. It's not a hallucination. And that really is quite mind-blowing. 
Now, we're going to sing again, and then I'll come on to part two. Don't worry, that's not the shortest sermon you've ever heard. Uh, We're going to have part two. We're going to sing um, the song, the paraphrase, The Savior Died But Rose Again. Uh, We'll sing it a cappella, and we will uh, sing it to the tune, St. Andrew. Uh, And we'll stand to sing, and Stephen will lead us in singing that. I love this story because I feel I can identify with Thomas in so many ways. And let me just tell you just a little bit about him. It's interesting that John uses both uh, Thomas's Aramaic and his Greek name. And it, he records Thomas's unbelief and coming to faith in a way that illustrates the gospel's main purpose. These things are written that you may believe. You're thinking, well, here I am and... I'm not sure about all of this. I'm not sure I believe any of this. Who's this for? This is written for you. Incidentally, Thomas was a twin. Uh, We don't know who his twin was. His name does mean the twin. Um, He is uh, quite a complex character, I think, as many of us are. What we know from the Bible is that uh, despondency and devotion marked Thomas. He uh, he was very... um, loyal to Jesus, uh, but uh, was easily discouraged as well. He expects evil if you go to chapter 11, verse 16, or chapter 14 and verse 5. Let's go this way that we may die with him. Jesus is going to the grave of his friend Lazarus, and Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, okay, let's go with him, we're going to die. That's Thomas for you. He's he's loyal, he's going to go with Jesus, but this is not going to end well. Um, I think Thomas was a Scot. Uh, He... Uh, he was quite outspoken. Uh, he says to Jesus at one point, how can we expect to know the way if we don't even know the destination? He's not afraid to question Jesus. But for him, the universe collapsed when Jesus died. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So in this story, we're told that on the evening of the first day of the week, that first Easter Sunday, The disciples were together. They were still afraid. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. That means the Jewish leaders who had pursued them. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, and showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. He breathed on them and told them they would receive the Holy Spirit and so on. But Thomas wasn't there. Verse 24, Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples. Didymus, the twin, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Just an observation. Maybe one of the reasons you don't know is because you haven't heard. And let me say this to those of us who are Christians. Maybe one of the reasons you're so discouraged within yourself is because you've not been feeding on God's word. Is because you've been too easily knocked out like Thomas. Why wasn't Thomas there? Why wasn't he there with the other disciples who were afraid perhaps, definitely, but who'd certainly be praying and trying to encourage one another and help one another through their grief? Well, we don't know. We don't know why he wasn't there. He certainly didn't believe that Jesus was alive. Hebrews 10, 25, which we've been uh, looking at in our, or the whole of Hebrews we've been looking at in our uh, pastoral groups tells us that we should not give up meeting together but encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching our meeting together is an encouragement and I know that one of the reasons that many Christians struggle is because they've kind of given up 
was uh, McShane said this, I resolve never to be absent from God's house on Sundays without good reason, never to miss the Lord's Supper when administered in our own congregation, never to let our place be empty when means of grace are going on. This is one way to be a growing and prosperous Christian. Matthew 18.20 says this, where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. The cold chill of unbelief comes across the believer when we absent ourselves from meeting together with other believers. That was Thomas's mistake. He had a demand as well. He wanted physical evidence, verse 25. And le- we've seen the Lord, they said. And he basically says, no, I don't believe you. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas wants to see and to hear and to feel. And so a week later, the following Sunday, his disciples are in the house again. Thomas is with them. The doors are locked again. Don't think the disciples go, oh, Jesus is alive and everything's great now. They were still afraid. They had to work through a lot of things. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, as he did before. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, and so on. Notice how merciful and kind Jesus is to slow and dull believers. Now that should encourage many of us here. Thomas didn't believe the testimony of the other believers. Jesus doesn't come and say, right, you're done. Because I told you, and they've witnessed it, you haven't believed them, out. You're gone. You're the next Judas. That's not what Jesus says at all. He comes and deals with him like a child, really. Take the, just the demands of Thomas and the contrast of how Christ responds. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, see my hands, says Jesus. And put my fingers where the nails were, bring here your finger. And put my hand in his side, bring your hand, put it in my side. I will definitely not believe. Stop doubting and believe. The Lord is rich in patience. Matthew Henry says this, Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock, yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Sometimes you'll be so conscious of the presence of the risen Christ that you say, I will never, ever doubt God again. I will never, you know, question. And then a month down the road, two days down the road, You're in dark spiritual despair and discouragement. And then you're even more despair because you think, but what's happened to me? Where have I gone? Jesus will never accept me now. And I think I would just encourage those of you who are believers in that way to understand that Christ is incredibly patient with his people. Incredibly patient. And then, of course, Thomas does change, doesn't he? He changes from laying down conditions to Christ to being submissive. Um, My Lord, verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Did he fully understand what he was saying? I don't know. I don't know what theological grasp he had. I don't know if he could have given a talk on the ontological trinity. And if you don't know what that is, ask Sinclair (laughs) or Will. (laughs) But, you know, I don't know if I could... I mean, I don't know. That's not what it was about. I think he understood much, much more who Jesus was, the Son of God, God himself. From unbelief to verse 28 is an extraordinary leap 
to take place. I love, I do love the fact that um, yesterday we had uh, two young men in nice suits, black suits, young American men with badges, so you know who they were, and I just said, no, thank you. And they said, ah, but, and as soon as they said, ah, but, I thought, okay, you asked for it. So um, I, I was actually playing chess on my computer, and I, basically the conversation went on so long, I, I timed out. But it was just interesting talking to them, because they were professing themselves as Christians, as Mormons. They had no idea who God is. No idea at all. And it was so, de- ah, but if you read this book, I said, I've read it, it's rubbish. Ah, but, I said, what, you really want to believe in a guy who uh, says that he had a pair of magic glasses that l- enabled him to read Egyptian, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, a language which doesn't exist anywhere? You seriously want me to go that? Oh, but God revealed it to us. We feel it. I said, no, no, I've got more than that. And they said, what do you got? I said, I've got the risen Christ. I don't need to feel it. I don't need magic glasses to read a non-existent language. All I need is Christ. I don't need to feel it in my heart even. All I need is Christ. And I'll commit myself to and follow Christ. And that is what Paul did. That's what happened with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Or it's what happened with Lydia, that the Lord opened her heart to receive the testimony that was given. So I love Thomas. When Thomas says, I won't believe it, and then verse 28 my Lord and my God. Some of you, you may be sitting here and you're saying, I don't believe this. I'm not going to believe this. This doesn't fit. And I'm saying, you're in big, big trouble. Because one day, and maybe even it's today, Jesus is talking to you and he's deconstructing the worldview that you have, the thought patterns that you have. And you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, what's happening? This is really scary. This is scary. This is for real. This isn't just religion. This isn't just what I thought it would be. This is Absolutely, not just personal life-changing, but world-changing. And look what happens. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The resurrection was the greatest sign of all. The other signs point to that. Today, we depend on secure evidence and not sight. Isn't that true? You can see things that are not real. You can, see, you can have a mirage. You can see things that are not true. It's not just the evidence of your, sentence, your, your senses. What is the secure evidence we have? The evidence of the scriptures, the witness of the church, and our own experiences. The risen Christ is really Christ. That means he is really the Son of God. He has a real body. He brings peace. He sends the disciples as he's been sent by the Father. He gives the Spirit and he forgives sins. I was reading a, um, a commentary by uh, someone who's describing how his family responded to all of this. And he says this, my sister Swede a lovely name, who often sees to the nub, offered this. People fear miracles because they fear being changed, though ignoring them will change you also. See, I think there's two reactions. If you you get what the resurrection is, there's two reactions that you can have. If you don't get it, 
it's just it's just going to be bland. You know, it's it, it, it's just not going to make any sense to you at all. But if you grasp it and you understand it, and by the way, if you listen to an awful lot of religious services and stuff about the resurrection that will go on today on the television and so on, I have to say it's bland. I'll tell you what it's like. Um, some of you will understand this. Some of you won't understand this image. You know Blamange. Blamange, I used to get that at school dinners. It is the most tasteless pudding you will ever have. If you're from the southern U.S., think of grits or, or something like that. It, it's, you know, it, Blamange is it's, it's like the beige of food. You know, it's colorless. It's, 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 it's awful. And I think an awful lot of spiritual food that gets served up to people is, is kind of like that. It's, it's, it's blancmange, it's tasteless. There's no spice in it. There's no bite in it. I think that what you've got here is, if you like, red hot curry. That once you understand this, once you grasp this, once you taste this in a spiritual way, it really changes you completely. And the two responses are this. One is fear. If this is real, it is really freaky. It is really, it is not what you expect. It's not what you are looking for. If it's real, then it changes everything. I did a a debate with the president of the Humanist Society in Glasgow, and he said, he stood up and he said, even if somebody asked a question, if 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 it was real, how would that change you? And he said, oh, it wouldn't change me at all. And I said, you, you have no idea whatsoever about what you've just said. It doesn't make any sense because it changes everything for you. And I suspect that some of us want to, if you like, deal with this particular fear by taking this teaching, putting it in a box marked religion and saying, right, just put that aside. I don't need to deal with that because it's religious and it's too heavy or it's too, or it's just what other people believe and I don't want to touch that. Or others just run away from it. Just absolutely walk and run away. And I plead with you not to do that. I think the other reaction has to be joy. Now, some of us who are Christians, we're so blasé about this. I think we've become kind of blamange in that sense. Uh, We think, yeah, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. That's good. Now let's get on to the important stuff. Tell me about me or tell me about how my life can be changed. Your life is changed if Jesus rose from the dead. Your life will never be the same if Jesus rose from the dead and you believe and you follow him. The Christian has no cause to fear who can look to Jesus by faith and say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, with such a savior, we need not be afraid to begin the life of real religion. And with such a savior, we may boldly go on. Some of you will have had a tough week and you come here a bit battered and a bit bruised And you're thinking, yeah, it's Easter and that's great and that's good and I believe that, but it doesn't really impact the fact that I've had a tough week. Actually, it does. It changes everything. It changes the whole backdrop of your life. It changes the whole foundation of your life. It changes the whole future of your life. And it makes the troubles that you have had this week pale into almost insignificance. Yeah, they hurt. And yes, they are confusing. And yes, they cause you to ask lots of questions. But because Christ is alive, you respond with joy. Nobody's got anything like this. No, no religion in the world, no philosophy, no politics. Nobody's got anything like this. And whatever we have, we can go from here saying Christ is risen. 
and the Christians who are in Iraq who are being battered, literally. The families of the 147 Christians killed and slaughtered because they were Christians. Did you know that um, the Islamic extremists targeted a place of prayer specifically in order to kill them? How do you think these families react? I tell you this, that if they are believers, the fact that Jesus is alive will have even more relevance for them today. Otherwise, the deaths of their families and friends is utterly meaningless. But if Christ is alive, it has meaning. The woman who's just been told that her husband's got cancer, if Jesus is not alive, that is so depressing. But if Christ is alive, it means that even that can have meaning. So it's not just if you're not a Christian that this is how you become a Christian. It's if you are a Christian, this is the whole purpose and meaning and foundation and background of your life. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are so often like Thomas. We doubt, we're cynical, we're skeptical. We confess that we're so often like the other disciples. We're afraid, we lock the doors. We don't want to open. Help us to overcome our unbelief. I pray for those who as yet do not know you, that even as they've heard about you this morning, that they would cry out to you, God have mercy on me. I pray, O Lord, that those of us who do know you and who understand this and know this in our heads, that we may know it in our hearts and that it would make a difference in our lives. Almost let it be as though we are reconverted as though we've been brought to you again. We have lost the wonder of the cross. We have lost the wonder of the resurrection. Lord, on this beautiful day, may your son shine his spirit into our hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.